Hi, and welcome to Talking With Cancer. I'm Katie, and I'm here to give you an honest, real, and even funny outlook on living with cancer. There is no one way to do cancer, and I've decided to share my story to help and inspire others, as well as raise awareness. At age 43, I was diagnosed with a rare type of thyroid cancer known as hobnail in February 2022, having never had any health issues previously. I was fit and well and took pretty good care of myself. But despite that, I got a diagnosis and I am on a long-term treatment plan. On this podcast, I will be sharing my progress regularly. And I often speak to amazing guests who've been impacted by cancer in some way. I really hope you enjoy listening. And if you do, then please rate, review, follow and recommend the pod. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Talking With Cancer. I've said this before. I'm so lucky that I have a great relationship with the Institute of Cancer Research. I've spoken to a couple of their professors, researchers before, Professor Paul Hwang and Professor Trevor Graham previously, who were both great. And today I speak to Professor Kevin Harrington. Oh, what amazing chat. We had such a brilliant conversation. I was particularly interested to talk to him because of his area of expertise and how it relates to me. So he is the head of division of radiotherapy and imaging and studies the use of biologically targeted agents in combination with treatments such as radiotherapy and chemotherapy to target cancer cells selectively. He's a specialist in head and neck cancer and in melanoma and a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians and the Royal College of Radiologists. So that's his broad biog, but he does some incredible things and has got just a very fascinating and mind-blowing approach to studies and trials really understand like how does the body in particular the body's immune system deal with tumors and why does certain cancers stick around in the body and metastasize or grow or stay you know whereas in certain cases in a lot of cases cancers come and go and people never even know they've had a cancer like it's just that's also what happens because very often your immune system can fight it so he wants to understand like how does the immune system respond to certain cancers and why does it respond and how can certain treatments how can we manipulate the immune system to respond I'm probably not really doing justice exactly what it is that he does, but we had such a brilliant chat. Oh, I mean, he's clearly really passionate about it, but also he is leaving a really important legacy behind with a view to a next generation of people stepping into his shoes, kind of taking what they've learned and what he's learned and then going the next step further and for that to continue and continue, which is so generous and is really what like the study of cancer treatment should be about. And it's there for the greater good, isn't it? What I really liked about his approach is him observing like how it's changed over the 30 years since he's qualified um, and how the attitude to the sort of the patient-oncologist relationship has changed and evolved as well, and how as an individual and as a patient, obviously myself, I definitely feel that my relationship with my medical team is collaborative, and that is so, so important for me. I feel that they don't dictate to me, like, the treatment that I need to be on and how I need to take it. It's a discussion. And I definitely think at the forefront of a lot of that discussion is like, how am I feeling day to day? You know, that's the question I get asked when I see my oncologist, how are you feeling? That's what they care about. 
And I really hope that, you know, for any other cancer patients or patients listening who have relationships with their doctors and medical team, they have the same sort of what I want to call a working relationship, because essentially that's what it is. And if you don't, then maybe question why you don't and how you can encourage that, because, you know, it is your body at the end of the day and you need to feel empowered that you are clear about what it is you're being treated with and why. And, you know, if there's anything in addition that you can be doing, whether that's exercise or whether that's understanding your sleep patterns or your diet or whatever it might be, whether it's meditation or yoga, all those integrative things that I do that I've talked about, you know, that's something I think as well that you can discuss with your medical team in terms of like, those are things that you want to be doing and those are things that are important to you. So yeah, I really like Kevin's attitude and I'm gonna play that interview for you now. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's lovely to have you on Talking With Cancer. Well, it's my great pleasure to be here, Katie. Thanks for inviting me. I feel really lucky. I've said this before. I've already spoken to a couple of people from the Institute of Cancer Research. I feel like we're one big happy family. And it sort of works both ways because I think I've got maybe some interesting things to share with you and you've definitely got interesting things to share with me. So it's a nice, nice two-way relationship, I like to think. <laughs> well, I hope I continue the theme of your having had good interactions with the Institute of Cancer Research. I've got a feeling you will. You are head and neck. You are head and neck. That sounds a bit random, doesn't it? But that's your area of specialism, amongst other things. Why was that of interest to you? I've been asked this question by a number of people, not least of all family members. How did you get into what you're doing now? It's like many things in life, I think. There's a randomness to it. But I guess when you get to where you are, you look back and you think, well, it couldn't ever have been anything other than this. So I guess my stock answer to this is um, when I was training as a medical student, I worked out fairly quickly that one of the things that I was interested in was oncology. When I became a junior doctor, very quickly I decided that I wanted to train as an oncologist. And then when I was training as an oncologist, I realized fairly quickly that the most difficult topic in oncology at the time, and as a radiation oncologist, this still is probably true, was the treatment of patients with head and neck cancer. It's extremely technically challenging. It's emotionally challenging because the disease is a difficult disease to treat. And at the time, the outcomes were much worse than they are now. And so quite often you are having difficult conversations with people about really difficult circumstances. And I always relish that. I've always relished a challenge. So that was the sort of the design of it. The randomness is, of course, when I was offered a chance to do a research PhD, it just so happened that the people who had the money wanted me to work on head and neck cancer. So it was a nice confluence. I ended up doing my PhD on topics related to head and neck cancer. And after that, really, the die was cast. There was nothing else for me other than head and neck cancer. And I've spent most of my working time since about 1994 focused on head and neck cancer. Wow. You've seen a lot in that time, I imagine, a lot of change. What are some of the common cancers under the head and neck umbrella, if you like? Because obviously thyroid is one of them, which I have. What are the other ones? It's funny, we say head and neck cancer, but of course, every time I discuss this, I don't think this works on a podcast necessarily, but you have to draw an imaginary horizontal line sort of just through your ear and to your eyebrow. And anything north of that, which is, of course, the substance, the cranial cavity in the brain, I don't have any expertise in that at all. So when it's head and neck, it's actually not really head and neck. It's below the skull base and down to the collarbone. But that doesn't roll off the tongue quite as easily as, <laughs> as head and neck. So the sorts of diseases that we treat most particularly are tumors that arise in the mouth, in the back of the mouth, the throat, in a place that's called the oropharynx, but most people would think of as their throat, the place when you say you've got a sore throat, that's where it hurts. And then the voice box, the larynx, and the swallowing tube below the throat at the back of the mouth, and that's called the hypopharynx. And then there's another bit just above 
the mouth at the back of the nose called the nasopharynx. So those are the main diseases. And of course, within our team, we also treat patients who suffer from diseases of the thyroid gland. So we treat thyroid cancer as well. Wow. And so those other areas that you've just mentioned, to me, they don't seem like common cancers. Do they fall under a rare cancer generally or not? Do they just less common or am I wrong about that? Under the general rubric of head and neck cancer, it falls into the category of rare cancers all by itself as a grouping. Probably, depending on how you count, it's something between eight and 14,000 people a year in this country will suffer from this disease. But each of those individual subtypes, because of course, head and neck cancer is not a single diagnosis. It's literally dozens of different types of tumors, because we also treat diseases in the nasal passages, in the sinuses beside the nose and underneath the skull base. We treat tumors within the salivary glands. Each of those individual subsites, as they're called, represent rare tumors that will afflict fewer than a thousand people a year in this country. But nonetheless, they're diseases that have very real problems associated with them. They cause real problems and symptoms to people, and they represent life-threatening and unfortunately life-ending diseases. And so we treat all of those diseases, but the commonest tumor type that I see uh, nowadays is a, a type of cancer of the throat of the oropharynx affecting um, the back of the tongue, the tonsils, and the soft palate. And that's a squamous carcinoma. And the commonest cause of that nowadays, actually, in this country is a virus infection with human papilloma virus. Whereas when I started, you mentioned earlier about changes. When I started, we didn't even recognize that that illness existed. The disease I treated was mostly related to heavy smoking and alcohol consumption. We see less of that type of head and neck cancer now and more of the virally associated malignancy. But you work with viruses, don't you? That's a yeah. big part of your study, which is just fascinating. What I seem to understand a bit more from the little I know is that a lot of the time these trials and these treatments are about accessing what the body's already able to do and sort of yeah. encouraging it to do that a bit more, if that makes sense. Can you... Explain yeah. if that does make sense, my interpretation of that. It makes perfect sense, you know, and I think it's a really important, you know, statement around what I think I used to hear when I was training and when I was first a consultant. You used to hear as you were sitting there explaining to a person with cancer, you were telling them that one of your surgical colleagues was going to try and cut the tumor out, or we were going to, and I use this word, colloquially, we were going to blast it with radiation, or we were going to try and poison it to death with chemotherapy. And the focus, all of the focus was around the cancer. So we had a very, to use the jargon, a very cancer-centric view of the world. And of course, you'd sit there with patients in front of you, and the patient would say to me, what can I do to help myself, doctor? And most of the time, in a very ill-informed way, I'd say, just lie there and take the treatment that I'm going to dispense to you. And it was very much about trying to kill the cancer and the target was always the cancer cell. And then of course, following my PhD studies and when I did some postdoctoral studies in the United States, the Mayo Clinic, the view of the world was changing then. Of course, there were others way ahead of me in this thinking and they were beginning to think about using the immune system to try to treat cancer. Now, for 20 or 30 years, that had been held up as essentially the holy grail of treating cancer, rather than trying to, you know, carpet bomb it with radiation or poison it to death with horrible noxious chemicals that would nearly kill the person or remove large chunks of the body, leaving deformity and lack of function. Instead, we could perhaps try to enlist the help of the patient's own immune system to do the heavy lifting and direct our therapies not in a cancer-centric way towards poisoning or killing cancer cells, but exactly the opposite, to empower and to activate anti-tumor immune responses to actually deliver therapy against the disease. And so 
there has been a huge shift in our focus in cancer treatments. Of course, the old style treatments, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy contribute to the cure of cancer in countless patients across the world on an annual basis. And none of those treatments are in a situation now where we should discard them. And um, they still have a very, very valuable role to play. And indeed, quite a lot of what I do in a day-to-day -day basis involves giving those treatments. But we're now thinking that we should be using immunotherapy more and more often. And I think there are going to be big, big changes in the next coming one to two decades in how we deploy those treatments. So what are some of those trials that you're carrying out and you're looking at the moment with regards to, I know there's immunotherapy plus radiotherapy is yeah. one big area that you're yes. looking into. We talked about viruses and oncolytic virus therapy. Yes. Is another area. To me, hearing you talk like this is where the synergy I feel between the medical team and the patient is absolutely vital. And it's that sweet spot of saying, let's work collaboratively because I'm of the mindset that like my body is amazing. It can do amazing things. Okay. There's a big deal wrong with it at the moment, but surely let's utilize like the mechanics of what it can do, encourage that more and more to fight this disease. Although I don't use fight in an aggressive way. It doesn't really work for me, yeah, yeah. but hearing you talk like this is just music to my ears. It's just wonderful because it's exactly the path that I'm on at the moment, you know, and I'm looking at a holistic approach to my treatment. And what I'm hopeful is, is that, you know, these trials are going to continue to the point where in time <laughs> they'll work for me. So yeah. Do you mind sharing how that works? The immunotherapy radiation at the start with no, sure. So, um, and again, Katie, please stop me if I go on at length, because I have a tendency to do so in talking about these subjects. But if we start with immunotherapy, the basic premise of immunotherapy is that every patient that I meet who has a cancer that can be seen on a scan or felt as a lump or seen as a you know, blemish or a, a tumor, that patient has a tumor that has learned how to sidestep that person's immune system. We have a hypothesis that essentially says that the so-called three E's hypothesis of how the immune system works. So in the first setting, you'll be familiar with this notion of we all probably develop tumors throughout our lives, but our immune system is capable of getting rid of a number of them, and we never even know we had it. And so that is the so-called elimination. That's the first D. The second D is unfortunately where a tumor gains enough of a foothold or has enough genetic change within it to allow it to be strong enough to withstand the predation of the immune system, but not to an extent where it can get away and grow and become uncontrolled. And so that's the phase of so-called equilibrium, where the tumor sort of exists in some sort of symbiotic relationship, but the person, the patient, well, who's not even a patient because they don't have a clinical tumor, they're able to coexist with that disease and it doesn't cause trouble. And of course, patients may die. People may die. They're not patients. People may die without ever knowing they had that tumor in the first place because it's in equilibrium phase. But unfortunately, every patient I meet at the hospital is in the so-called escape phase where the tumor has escaped from the ability of the immune system to keep a lid on it. And so the notions around thinking about the disease in that way gives us a framework to think about how we might be able to treat the disease with immunotherapy. And so if you imagine the sorts of things that the tumor needs to know or needs to learn how to do in order to get around the immune system, we try to reverse some of those processes or block those processes. So we know that within our bodies, there are checks and balances, switches on our immune system that can turn the immune system on and turn the immune system off. Now, those are really useful to have an immune system because if you get the flu, 
the last thing you want is to make an immune response against that flu virus for the rest of your life for the next 30, 40, 50 years after having the flu. You want to turn the immune response on and then you need to be able to power it down again into a state of suspended animation, but it can wake up again if it sees the flu again. We're boosting ourselves against coronavirus, for instance, in the same way with vaccinations. So you want to have those mechanisms in place. The trouble is cancers in the escape phase have nearly always learned how to make the proteins that allow them to press the switches on the immune system and turn the immune system off. So they can power down the immune system. So the first major breakthroughs that led to Nobel Prizes for the development of two different ways of reanimating the immune system through something called anti-CTLA-4 drugs and anti-PD-1, anti-PDL-1 drugs, those are both switches on the immune system that are used potentially in patients with cancer for the cancer to escape, to power down the immune system. The drugs that we've developed actually block the ability of the cancer to press those off switches and turn the immune system back on again. So what most people think of as immunotherapy are monoclonal antibody drugs describe it like this to patients who I see in the clinic. If you imagine that the switch on the immune cell is like a light switch, the tumor in a sense has a finger, a protein that it makes that it shouldn't make, but it's there, or the surrounding cells around the tumor make this protein, which is like a finger, and it presses the off switch, the light switch on the immune cell. If you've got a drug that is a light protein that sits over the light switch, and I'm miming here that I've got my hand over a light switch, the finger can't press the light switch any longer. Or alternatively, you have a protein that sits on the finger, and the fingers now doesn't fit the light switch. It can't find it. It can't turn the immune system off. Those are the classes of drugs that we're making, and those are the things that are changing the way that we treat cancer and are making huge strides in patients with melanoma disease, with lung cancer, head and neck cancer, kidney cancers, a whole range of different tumors. And so those really are the ways that we're changing away from using poisonous treatments or toxic cutting tumors out, irradiating tumors, to trying to reanimate immune responses against disease. And uh, sorry, that's a slightly long-winded version of things, but that's how we think about it. Why are there certain cancers that haven't yet been able to be treated in that way, like thyroid cancer? Because this is always my question to Kate. Well, it was my last question to Kate Newbold. Yeah. You know, what about immunotherapy? She said there are trials happening at the moment with combining immunotherapy and targeted treatment. Yes. So, yeah, so why doesn't it work for all tumours? It's a fantastic question, and I wish I had the answer. I wish I had a good answer, a better answer than the one I'm about to give you. So we know that the tumour types that appear to be most susceptible to immunotherapy are tumours that tend to have a high burden of mutations. By that, I mean that their DNA has been unstable during the time of the evolution of the tumour. And essentially, they will make a number of different proteins which are abnormal when compared to the normal cellular protein that they should be. So you're familiar with this notion because unfortunately the tumor from which you suffer is driven by a mutated protein. Now that protein will have a slightly different appearance to the normal wild type protein, which means that potentially if fragments of that protein are shown on the surface of a cell, they should be visible to an immune response. Now we know that for patients who have the most likelihood of responding to immunotherapy, their tumor essentially will have many, many mutations. And essentially, they will show on their surface a number of different abnormal fragments of proteins called peptides, also known as antigens and sometimes known as neoantigens if they're not normally present on the surface of a cell. The immune system can, in theory, and indeed in practice, see those. For some tumor types, that mutational burden is very high. The opportunities for immune responses, i.e. to have immune cells that can see those abnormal peptides on the surface, is therefore higher. It's a bit like 
if you want to win the lottery, they say you should buy a lot of tickets. You know, if you've got a lot of these things on the surface, maybe you'll have some T cells, some immune cells that can see those peptides. For some tumors, they have almost no mutations. For one of the tumors that I treat, which is a particularly problematic tumor, a type of cancer called adenoid cystic carcinoma of salivary gland origin, it is relentless slow but relentless, but has almost no mutations, which means that there are almost never immune responses against it. Thyroid cancer cells also have low mutational burden and are therefore not well seen by the immune system. The paradox with thyroid cancer, of course, is that many, many people in the general community will get an autoimmune thyroid disease. And so they'll lose their thyroid gland function because their own immune system kills their thyroid gland. But it doesn't seem to be well able to kill thyroid cancer cells. So we need to understand where that disconnect comes from and how perhaps we can empower the immune system to see thyroid tumor cells better. So you should never stop asking Kate, the question about why can't I have immune therapy or why doesn't immune therapy work for thyroid disease? Because we're working on it. And I hope that we will find ways of reactivating immune responses against even thyroid tumors. Yes, please. The combination of treatments is so interesting. It happens a lot. Lots of different types of treatments are now being combined I hear people taking a treatment and then they stop for a week or two and then they start. In terms of the research, how did the idea of combining treatments come about? Oh, gosh, this goes right back to the dawn of chemotherapy. So, um, so it's not new. It's not new. No, no, no. Okay. So shortly after the Second World War, when in America people were using derivatives of of things like mustard gas, actually, the nitrogen mustards, to treat hematological malignancies such as leukemias and lymphomas, it became realized fairly quickly that if you use just one drug, you could get quite an effective kill of cancer cells. But what would happen is that there would be other cells that would be less susceptible to that drug. And of course, what you'd end up doing is you'd be exerting almost a dull and selection pressure against the tumor. You'd kill the vulnerable, you'd kill the weaker, but you'd select for the stronger and the resistant. And those cells would grow back even more powerfully than they were before because they didn't have the competition of their weaker neighbors, for instance. So two mathematicians, Goldie and Coldman, decided that one of the ways to address that would be to combine more than one drug. And so we ended up in a situation where leukemias and lymphomas were routinely treated by regimens containing two, three, and four drugs. So multi-drugs treatment were used to try to prevent the emergence of resistance and the evolution, the selection of tumors that would be able to survive and to grow back after treatment. And that was really quite successful against hematological malignancies. We tried to do similar things against solid cancers, so tumors of the breast, the lung, the thyroid, the head and neck. And those combination regimens were never quite as successful. They never got quite the same access, quite the same powerful hit against the tumor as was possible with hematological and lymphomatous malignancies. But the principle still maintained that if you try a single therapy, sooner or later, it's likely that the tumor will evolve a resistance. So that has led to trying to use treatments which have non-overlapping mechanisms of killing the cancer. So the cancer would have to have two separate ways of sidestepping. The cancer cell would have to have two separate ways of sidestepping the treatment, ideally with non-overlapping toxicities, because if, if you heap one toxicity directly on top of another, the treatment becomes unsustainable. And so the idea has been always to look for combination regimens where you exert different mechanisms of action against the tumor to exploit different vulnerabilities of the cancer cells without doubling up on the toxicities. So chemotherapy plus radiation, surgery plus radiation or surgery plus chemotherapy. Now in the modern era, targeted drugs such as the drugs that you yourself have received, Katie, 
possibly with immunotherapy, possibly with chemotherapy. These regimens are trying to exploit similar processes, which is this idea of kill the cancer in different ways, different mechanisms, don't double up on the toxicities. And that's really been the way that we've thought about things. And of course, now we do it with the so-called targeted drugs and with immunotherapies and with other agents. I only had, I had one treatment of radiotherapy actually on one lymph node that yes. was sort of blocking the airway into my lung whilst I was taking lenvatinib, the targeted treatment I was on. Yes. Um, I found that combination was quite tough actually, the side effects of that. But going back to my questions, I know I keep jumping around, but immunotherapy and radiotherapy. Yes. How would you administer that treatment? What are your findings? Well, so far, there's been quite a lot of hullabaloo about how it's going to be um, a great advance. So there's a very, very strong rationale for why this should work. And I believe we will make it work. We just haven't been able to get it right just yet. So the rationale goes something like this. If you deliver radiation and you hit a cancer cell, you damage its DNA and you potentially kill it in a way that if you get the sweet spot in terms of the dose and maybe a drug that you combine with the radiation to make the radiation work better, you can kill that cancer cell in a way whereby its death raises a red flag and it becomes visible, potentially visible to an immune response. So that is the so-called wow. phenomenon of immunogenic cell death. And wow. that means that the cancer, rather than dying and slipping away quietly, it dies with a bit of noise and what's called danger signals. And so if we get that right, what we can do is we can make sure that the cancer dies in a way where the immune system could potentially see it. Cancers are able, through mechanisms that we've discussed a little earlier, they're able to put the brakes on the immune system or they block the immune system, you know, essentially by pressing the light switch on the immune cells and turning them off, powering them down. If we potentially give the drugs that allow the immune system to be activated at the same time, the immune system could potentially see those dying cells pick up bits of those dying cells, carry them off to lymph nodes in the area, show them to other cells in the immune system, wake those cells up. And of course, if we're giving drugs such as the immune checkpoint blocking antibodies, those things I talked about, covering up the light switch or putting something on top of the finger to stop that, turning off of the immune response. If we give those drugs at the same time, potentially we can really amplify anti-tumor immune responses. We have been able to make that work in mouse tumors extremely effectively. We've also been able to show in some tumors, notably in lung cancer and also in esophageal cancers, if you give radiation or chemotherapy and radiation together and then give immune therapy afterwards, you can improve the numbers of people who remain well and alive and free and cured of their disease for a prolonged period of time. But we've also done studies where we got it completely wrong. And I've been the architect of at least two of those studies, or at least a partial architect, because I sat on committees designing those studies, where we thought it would be a good idea for good reasons, but as it turns out, the wrong reasons, to combine the radiation with the immunotherapy at the same time. And what we saw is a failure to improve things. And in fact, in some cases, a trend to make things worse. And so I think what we need to understand is that, of course, when you're giving the radiation to the tumor at the same time as trying to wake up its immune system and the response against it through the immune system, the radiation and the drug treatment, the chemo that you give during that can kill the immune cells. And when you irradiate yeah. the lymph nodes, what I like to think of as the marshalling yards for the force that's going to come back and attack the tumor. And I know these allusions to warfare and things like this are, are often a little bit fatuous when talking about how the immune system targets cancer. But really, this is where you amplify the army of immune cells that is going to come back and kill the tumor. If you irradiate that lymph node, carpet vomit, if you like, you kill those immune cells and actually you undo all the good you think you're trying to do. So we're beginning to understand 
that we probably need to sequence the treatment better. So maybe give the radiation and the drug treatment first and then give the immune system boost with immunotherapy later. We probably need to modulate and modify the way we give the radiation, both in terms of the dose we give and also get away from our longstanding practice of, as I've said, and again, my colleagues in the radiation oncology community are going to hate me for using this term carpet bombing, but we literally broadly irradiate lymph nodes in both sides of the neck, for instance. And often I think we're over-treating those areas and we're going to learn how to be much more selective about what we do and don't treat to allow the immune system to grab a hold and for it to be able to come back and target the tumor. And then of course, we've tended to use just the drugs that we know have worked in one disease before. So we take a favored drug like an anti-PD-1 drug. I'm avoiding using brand names, but you know, people will know of these drugs which are, are known by short acronyms. They've all got these long names that end in MAB, monoclonal antibody. And we've tended to just pick those same drugs off the shelf and use them in an unstructured way without really understanding what might or might not work best. And so we need to do basic science and really understand the fundamentals of what drives the immune response to radiation and make tailored approaches. And again, a plug for the institute in which I work, the Institute of Cancer Research, that's what we're all about, is understanding the fundamental science underpinning how to design smart treatment regimens, not just one size fits all, but even individualized treatment regimens for different people with different types of cancer. And we're going to get there, Katie, I'm certain mm. of it. You know, to me, it's extremely familiar because quite frankly, they've never treated a me before. And they've always been honest with me about that. We don't know. We don't know. We don't yeah. know. Yeah. And so I am one of those cases where it's like, okay, well, what's going to work for me specifically? And it's sort of like everyone talks now about, you know, the metabolic diets, you know, the keto diet isn't right for everyone. And the vegan yeah. diet isn't right for everyone. And I assume it's sort of going, it's the same with cancer because everyone's chemistry is different, isn't it? Yes. Everybody's cancer has evolved in a specific way. There are groups of diseases. So there will be people who suffer from cancer and their tumors may be quite alike. And yet there'll be other people who have nominally the same tumor, but biologically it will behave in a different way. And we need to get around this habit that we've had of just talking about head and neck cancer, for instance, and we need to start categorizing diseases much more accurately, understanding what's driving the disease and target specific functions within the process that will allow for the best responses, not simply saying, oh, this is head and neck cancer, this is how we treat it. We still do that, of course, because that's how regulators approve treatments. They like to approve treatments for groups of people and for types of disease. We couldn't work in a system where every individual person had to have an individual approval for their therapies because, you know, the system would clogged up as it is, but it would clog up even worse. But we do need to be much more selective about the way we deliver treatment and it has to be more personalized. Mm, interesting. So can we go back to the virus question? Yes, that's one of my great loves. Absolutely. So um, it's a curious coincidence that I treat two diseases which are driven by viruses. So human papilloma virus related oropharyngeal carcinoma and a type of tumor at the back of the nose in a place called the nasopharynx driven by a different virus called Epstein-Barr virus. So a lot of the diseases I treat are caused by viruses. And yet one of the areas that I have particular interest in where the lab that I run in the Institute of Cancer Research works on using viruses as anti-cancer treatments. And in this way, as we've learned, we can use specific species of virus either in their native form where they grow out there in the world, so-called wild type viruses captured in the wild, brought into the lab and used for therapy, or viruses that we have captured from the wild, if you like, and have genetically modified, so-called genetically modified organisms. And so we work in both of those spaces with both of those different types of virus and have had particular success with one class of viruses, which is the herpes simplex viruses, which includes a virus that has been approved for the treatment of melanoma. And so the idea behind this is that there are certain types of viruses that either occur naturally 
or that you can genetically modify to have this property in that they will infect and grow very selectively in cancer cells and hardly grow in normal cells at all. They will kill those cancer cells and they will kill them through this process, which is called immunogenic cell death. Again, raising those red flags to the immune system, really saying to the immune system, look over here, there's something interesting happening. And in responding to the virus infection within the tumor cell, if we're lucky and if we get the treatment designed correctly, the immune system also sees the tumor that it had hitherto been neglecting or had been overlooking. And so the idea behind this is that we use viruses essentially to kill the cancer cells themselves, always a good thing, but also to wake up the immune system, a much better thing. And if we're really smart about it, we can use those viruses because we can genetically modify them to encode pieces of DNA that will encode for proteins that can specifically activate the immune system, or indeed in some of the viruses that we're using at the moment, even make inside the tumors themselves the very drugs that we're using as immunotherapy so they can make antibodies within the tumor. So how do you get that in? Sorry. Well, the, inject the, the, in, or... yeah, you inject the virus into the tumor. And the virus infects the cancer cell, makes copies of itself. So it's self-amplifying therapy, unlike other drugs where, you know, you wouldn't want aspirin to be self-amplifying. You could never control the dose. But with a virus, you can inject it into the tumor and it will grow more virus within the tumor, killing cancer cells as it goes. And if you make the virus encode for proteins that it manufactures as it replicates itself, it will release those proteins within the tumor and those proteins can activate immune responses or they can be those very drugs that you would otherwise deliver by injections into the patient's bloodstream. So they will be manufactured locally within the tumor. Because I've got lots of, I've got metastatic Yes, unfortunately cancer. So, so if you injected one <laughs> of my lumps, yeah. how would it get into the others? Great question. So the answer to that is it doesn't have to. If we get the treatment right, the idea is that we use a local vaccination against the tumor to generate an anti-tumor immune response. And of course, most of the work that we're now doing, we talked earlier about combinations. It's about combining that virus injection with something like an immune checkpoint inhibitor, one of those drugs I talked about, the light switch and the fingers pressing the light switch, the blockers. So we use an immune checkpoint blocking drug alongside the virus therapy. So you generate a local vaccination event within the one, two, three, four, five tumors you inject into. That generates immune cells which are activated, amplified, switched on, and those cells can migrate around the body and attack the rest of the disease. And we know that that's what happens because even in patients treated just with the virus, we see responses in lesions that are distant to where you gave the injection. Often, you know, you'll inject a lump in the neck and you'll see a response in the lung. And we don't see the virus in those tumors. It's the immune system that's done right. the heavy okay, lifting. Okay, because that's what I was going to ask. I was like, well, what if the virus then decides to go into the healthy lymph nodes, you know, or... This is the key to the use of oncolytic viruses. They are either naturally selected or they're genetically modified in such a way that they really don't grow well in normal tissues. Wow. So they are very, very selective. The problem that we have with them at the moment, and of course they sound wonderful, and I believe that they can be and they will be wonderful, but the trouble is that in order to get them able to grow in enough tumor cells and activate enough immune responses... We need to make them more and more powerful and able to do that. But we always have to retain that safety signal whereby they don't grow in normal cells. And so it's getting the balance between having, you know, a virulent virus that's able to cause problems versus a virus that is so neutered that it's really, it doesn't cause any problems, but it doesn't cause any efficacy, any therapy either. And so at the moment, we're trying to fine tune a number of these agents. We have a number of agents in clinical trials at the Royal Marsden Hospital and elsewhere in the country and around the world, which I think are, as the next generation of therapies, 
especially around this herpes virus platform, but there are a number of other viruses in development which are really going to make a difference, I think, and are going to become part of not standalone regimens, but combination regimens, especially with immune checkpoint blockers. This is such fascinating stuff. Can I ask what the timeline is for this, please? <laughs> well, it's now. It's it's literally now. I mean, the studies are ongoing, Katie. So we've got an approval already. So we started working on the first herpes virus we injected into a patient in about 2006. We got an approval for that drug in about 2016. The drug was for melanoma. It's got a ridiculously long name. So it's a herpes virus. It's called Telimogene Leherperepvec, but everyone calls it TVEC. And it's an agent that's approved by the FDA. It's approved by the EMA in Europe. It's approved by the MHRA here. It's actually approved by NICE. But the issue is that because in melanoma, so many other new treatments, immunotherapy, and some of the targeted drugs, such as the BRAF and the MEK inhibitors, came along, the drug really didn't gain much traction. But in other disease types and with new generation herpes viruses and other virus platforms such as vaccinia virus, rheovirus, vesicular stomatitis virus. There's a whole range of these things that are coming. We're making agents that are really designed to be combined as part of immunotherapy regimens. And those trials are ongoing right now. And we're treating patients in trials and others treating patients in trials. And I hope that we will begin to see approvals for these drugs in the coming years any time from now onwards, one would hope, the ongoing randomized studies are taking place. Fantastic. Wow. It's so fascinating, but you're brilliant at explaining things in a way that means I don't feel totally stupid. I'm sort of, wow. It's Yeah, I am a bit speechless because I feel like I've got this incredible access to people like you, thanks to my podcast. And it fills me with so much hope. You know, it really does, not just for me, but for so many people out there. And I remember early days of my diagnosis, a lot of people would say, Katie, treatment now is not what it used to be. And, you know, you've just got to stay hopeful. And absolutely, I do think that's true. I think it's absolutely the case, you know, and uh, I've been an oncologist now. Um, I started training as an oncologist in 1991. So I've been a oncologist for 30 in my 32nd year now as an oncologist. And the treatment that we deliver now is utterly unrecognizable in all forms to the treatment that we used to deliver 32 years ago when I started. The outcomes are improving all the time. Mm. Not enough, of course, and there's always more to do, but the outcomes are improving. And it's through this notion that I buy into and really, which is the raison d'etre of the Institute of Cancer Research and the Royal Marsden is really understand the fundamentals of the disease, design a treatment that attacks those fundamentals or exploits vulnerabilities that the cancer needs, or at least it, it has to have them in order to be a cancer exploit those vulnerabilities and then design therapies around them and test them. And as I often say, and as I get towards the end of my career, I guess, I say to the trainees that job that you have to set out to do when you start training and when you start working is you should try to make yourself obsolete, or at least what you trained how to do obsolete. So a lot of the stuff that I used to know how to do, we don't do it anymore, which is great. It's exactly how That's it an should... interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. Not many professions that would argue that. I mean, of course, I only want to make myself obsolete after I've retired, <laughs> not before I've retired. You know, that's important. Um, but the idea is that you should always strive to improve things to such a, an extent that actually you can replace yourself um, mm. and that you can replace what you used to know how to do. Then you hand on to the next generation who sets about doing the same thing. But I think that in the next decade or so, we're going to see things change again remarkably in the way we treat the disease. Mm. And absolutely, in your case, I very, very much hope that, you know, there'll be an opportunity for you to receive a treatment that, you know, continues to have an effect against your disease or even has a better effect against your yes, disease. Yes, I treatment. hope so too. And I think what I also would say is that not only have there been incredible advances in treatment, but I think that it's now 
seen as really important, like the quality of life that the patient experiences yeah. on that treatment. It's not just okay to pump them full of stuff and then, you know, to be really living quite miserable lives because of the treatment, you know, and that's something I've definitely found with my team. They were like very aware I wasn't tolerating a drug well, trying to find the right dose for me, trying to make things easier for me because you sort of think as you're going through it, what's the point, you know, if it's going to be yeah. this ghastly. <laughs> no, I, um, I, I, so yeah, that's important change as well, I think, in attitudes. I think, you know, again, it's just think reflecting on how things have changed in the time that I've been from a trainee through to where I am now. We used to live in a very patriarchal medical system where, you know, things were done to patients. And you've already said it yourself during this discussion that um, it's a partnership now. And, you know, you have a discussion with people. And, you know, the thing I guess that is always worth my bearing in mind and saying out loud is that all of the treatments that we've been able to develop in the time that I've been an oncologist and before and in the future are all built upon the fact that courageous people agree to have treatments that are either untried and untested or which have side effects profiles which are either unknown and need to be discovered or patients are asked to provide us with tumor material in the form of biopsies, which involve uncomfortable tests that they have to go through in order for us to learn and to understand. You know, it is one of the things that on a day-to-day -day basis is constantly, it just takes my breath away, the fact that people will, in a very generous fashion, subject themselves to things for the greater good. And they do it from a spirit of altruism, often hoping that they're going to derive benefit, very often knowing that they're unlikely to, and still they do it. And so we build all of these treatments on the basis of that partnership, but also the generosity of those who take part in the studies. I can't pay enough tribute to the patients that I have known, and um, you know, sadly, some of whom are not with us any longer, and many of whom thankfully have benefited, and some are still with us, and we rejoice in that fact. But this is what we rely upon in order to do mm. what we do. Well, that's the two-way relationship I was talking about at the beginning as well, you know, not just the collaboration, but hopefully I can share something that's insightful for you and well, you definitely can. A hundred percent. No, a hundred percent. That's yeah. absolutely true. Oh, well, it's been so wonderful talking to you, Kevin. Thank you for your time and your brilliant mind and for sharing everything in such an articulate, succinct way. I'm not entirely sure I succeeded in succinct, but it's kind of you to say that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oof, fascinating or what? This idea that like, if you inject viruses into tumors, it's like this deterrent. It's like a warning to your immune system. It's like a red flag. Brilliant, genius stuff. Like I said to Kevin, like what blows my mind is like what the body is capable of doing. And then it takes like the human brain in laboratories, in research centers with trials to figure this stuff out and to be in this sort of place and time that we're living in now is sort of saying exactly like he described, like rather than looking at what we can do to isolate that cancer and kill that cancer. It's like, actually, how can we use the body? How can we work with the body? The body's got what it needs. We just need to give it better tools in order to do that. It's just absolutely brilliant. So yeah, thank you, Kevin, for a wonderful chat. And thank you, Institute of Cancer Research, for all the work that you do. It's been a great relationship so far and long may that continue. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Yeah, get in touch and let me know what you think or thought. My email is hello at talkingwithcancer.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Bye.